thinking well about other people, sending metta, kind, loving kindness, and how that, in the moment of going through the bardo, that if you have any consciousness at all of thinking of others in that moment, gee, I, well, there's other people going through this experience. Yeah. I hope, I hope they all are well mitigates this fear in a gigantic way and doesn't it mitigate in our day-to-day lives the kind of separation and fear that uh, is so prevalent these days by virtue of just thinking outside of yourself. Hey everyone, it's Raghu back with Mind Rolling and David Silver, my original OG. Uh, How are you? I'm well, thank you. I was just nodding because I know there's a video component of this uh, Uh, response. (laughs) No, it's Uh, not smart at all. The people listening are going, what what is he doing? Is he alive? Well, Uh, hello. And mm. I, of course, want to tell everybody, you already know, uh, I just returned from a sojourn, a little uh, retreat in India, and um, feeling very refreshed. And in the process of that retreat, I brought, I only had one book. I mean, I had other books uh, digitally and all that, but I brought a, a hardcover. And you're the first person I called to say, wow about this book and it's Pema Chodron many of uh, the listeners I'm sure you all have uh, heard of her or many of you have heard of if you haven't heard of her she is one of the clearest uh, translators of the Tibetan tradition uh, in, in my mind she's just one of the great teachers that we have here Pema Chodron a westerner who lives in Nova Scotia and is her guru, her well, she uh, Karmapa, Chogyam, Trumpa, I mean, amazing beings, teachers in her life. And uh, the first person I called was you, Dave. Thank you. To say, you got to get this. And then why don't we share this um, in a podcast? And uh, so that's what we're doing here today, folks. And I'm just going to set the stage. So the book is called How We Live is How We Die. Okay, yeah, the first thing, Dave, is this sounds like a, uh, a subject, a theme in a podcast or something that is relegated to the old fogies out there, right? Us. And uh, you and I talked about this just a little bit, and I and it's inimitable in this book where she talks about the reality of how we choose to move our perspective, get out of the self-interest that we have on a 24-7 basis, uh, is about how we are going to approach the final change. And, uh, and we call it a change rather than an ending. So uh, she... Um, 
I, I just wanted to, here's a little bit about, uh, from the blurb actually, as much as we might try to resist, endings happen in every moment. The end of a breath, the end of a day, the end of a relationship, and ultimately the end of life. And accompanying each ending is a beginning, though it may be unclear what the beginning holds. I thought that was well said, actually, uh, to give an idea of the core of what this book is. So the bottom line is this isn't an age thing. Yes, of course, uh, whatever people who are more advanced and they're, I mean, you, anything can happen any moment. We all know that. Uh, so uh, this, but it's not about practicing to die. Yes, it is about that. At the same time, I have to say that both things are true, but it is about how to live. And I think uh, the takeaway goes just across the board to anybody interested in just uh, transforming, period. Does that all sound reasonable? Uh, reasonable no. is another word I'd use because it sounds reasonable to the extent that it's true. But much of what Pema's thing, and I've been reading her books for many years, and I have her card set, which is a card, Really? For every day. Well, it's a remarkable thing. And then there's a book that comes with it. And books like When Things Fall Apart. And she's been on this case forever because she understands the urgency of it. And, it, and you know, it may not seem urgency, as you said, Raghu, to a 24-year-old. I don't know what the heck I was thinking of at 24. Um, it, it certainly wasn't death. But then my father died when I was 21. And, you know, I, that was the first encounter I had with it, really. And... You know, it's it, psychedelics. It, you can't leave that out. Well, There's that's a what death I was, that, there. If it's that's, any, what I, that's what I was going to say. You know, yeah. it, it, I, Sorry. I, you know, he died. Uh, he was an unusual man. Um, he introduced me to Gurdjieff and to yogis and all kinds of stuff, and exactly predicted the day of his passing. So he was an unusual human being. However, when he went, I didn't really feel that different, and it was really strange. And mm. I felt like he was there. And mm. then. Uh, three years later, I took my first um, lysergic acid trip and experienced immediate groundlessness and as if I was dead and I was terrified. Mm -hmm. And working through that, as everybody does who does those psychedelic transformative uh, substances in the right way, um, and I I'm, don't want to sound prideful, but I did them in the right way because I was scared of doing them in the wrong way. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. So I didn't use them to go to the disco or to get laid or anything like that ever. I did them just to find some kind of reality that I was missing. Yeah. And the yeah. very first acid trip, because it was the one where I realized it was groundlessness in my life, as if I were dead. And I was shocked. And, um, but through that, going through that, I began to understand that this was worth massive mm -hmm. focus yeah. So for the last 50 years, I've been focusing on this personally. And yeah. not all the time, you know. I mean, when you're young, you've got a lot of things to think about and all these things you do in your life and you think it's incredibly important. And then suddenly a point comes when friends start to die, which is now. I lost mm -hmm. um, three people I love in the last 10 days. And my sobering did not start with these passings. It started with my own sense of, well, you know, I don't have that long to go. What am I going to do? Where am I going to be? In a hospice? Am I going to be on the street? What? Am I going to die? <laughs> I am going to die. And that's when that comes to you via the loss and the grieving process for others, 
Then yeah. Pema Chodron's words are not just valuable, they're treasures. They're yeah. true treasures. And I've, I've made countless notes here, and you have too, I know, yeah. to try and no, well, talk about this. You know, you know I mean, you know, what uh, I, want, I want it, sorry. Yeah. Oh, I just want to say one thing as a preamble that takes it out left a little bit. Not really. Um, but um, many of you also know out there, this is a little bit of a plug, David, about Brilliant Disguise, the Samadhi of K.C. Tuari, who was our mentor back in the day and who was appointed by Neem Karoli Baba to take care of the Westerners because he there's no cause he was appointed and he did take care uh, till he left and we uh just finished the this movie which as i say i'm sure many of you know about and it's uh november 16th it's in theaters now but it'll be available for streaming november 16th just keep an eye out and i was telling you yesterday dave I was looking for some bonus material to go along with the stream. So uh, I started going through what you sent me because you had all of the footage that we had for the film. David uh, directed the film. And I came upon this one thing. And you and I have seen it, but it just sunk in way more. Uh, and and uh, the reference is a little oblique related to this book. But he's, he was talking about meditation. And I, nobody ever sat in meditation, if you want to call, including absolutely every state of consciousness, which is part of meditation. I never saw anybody go as deep as that. And he said, it's not about concentration. It's not about power. It's about a way of life. That was the key phrase. It's about a way of life. What you went through, uh, like the way in which you approached, as you just mentioned, psychedelics and how you use them and, and really followed what Leary Alpert set and setting. It's basically what you did. Um, and to then know that that's what you wanted to do for the rest of your life is to keep on that tack of self-inquiry, shall we just say, right? in general yeah. yes. and that way of life it becomes a way of life so it's not so again going back to as you just said 24 year old it's uh yeah it's not about you uh taking you know every weekend and doing a death seminar or anything like that it's about understanding that the, the one, we'll talk about some of the things in in this book that really bring out once you have a connection with and an understanding of what one needs to do to transform. I mean, fear of death, really. Yeah. This is a book about fear of death. More accurately, this book presents a question. How do we relate to the most fundamental of all fears, the fear of death? It is less common for uh, people to open themselves fully to the inevitability of their death and any fear that that may provoke and to live their lives accordingly. I have found that those who do open themselves in this way are more engaged in life and more appreciative of what they have. They are less caught up in their own dramas. 
and have a more beneficial effect on other people and on the planet as a whole. Okay. Uh, you know, I think I agree with that. Um, what, well, this is what this is about. This, Yeah, this it is what it's about, really. I mean, I mean it, it, the, the question is, well, people come to things when they're supposed to come to them. I mean, that is just cliche, but it's true. And if you try and impose this discipline of constant consciousness of the passing nature of the trans, you know, the impermanence of life, some people can really just get it and then they'll spend the rest of their life like dealing with it. Other people just go, I don't want to hear about that. And I really don't want to hear about death. And she says in the book, and many other people have said it too, Rondas has said it, you know, that people are in denial about death. Yeah. Particularly in the West. And, you know, it, it catches you all the way through your life when you you hear of someone dying and you go, you know, and and it's just sort of like it used to be with pregnancy. You know, people thought that pregnant women were ill. I mean, they did. They thought they were sick. Hmm. Mm-hmm. For hundreds, if not thousands of years, the woman was sick when she was pregnant. She's not sick. Death is not a sickness. And I, I just wanted to quote a couple of things. First of all, she, yeah. said, she, she said, one of my main intentions in writing this book has been to help people become, quote, more curious than mm. afraid. More curious mm. than afraid. And that's brilliant. That's typical Pema. You know, that she gets you going. Then she says, I mean, she's not messing around this one. I've listened to courses. When you say things that are um, silly, she tells you. But what she did say in this book, she says, now is what we take with us when we die. We can't put it off until the end. By then, it'll be too late. So now is the time. How we live is how we die. That's the name of the book. And she's saying that all the way through, that you can even use your negative emotions as a conduit, as a catalyst to find awakening because of your awareness of those emotions and how you can deal with them, not let them ruin your life and the life of others. These practices that she maintains and has maintained throughout her teachings are Tibetan Buddhist practices saying that the emotions are not to be oppressed or left behind or thought of as battering. Just look at them. Say hello to them. Don't fight them. Don't get angry about them. See them. And she says, you can't know you're in a bardo until you know you're in the bardo. And if it's a bardo of emotional distress, know you're in it first. And maybe a therapist can help you do that. Maybe your wife can help you do that. Maybe a book can help you do that. But whatever it is, you have to know you're in it before you can change it. And you know what? You've got to, you know what you need to do? What? You need define bardo so we're all on the same page. Well, bardo is, you know, they're, they're according to... Tibetan um, uh, iconography and, and, and theology, if you like, there are five or maybe six bardos. Uh, there's this bardo. This is a bardo. Mm-hmm. Life, being alive on earth. Then there's the um, going to death bardo. You know, when you're in that transition. Yeah. And before that, there's a meditation bardo and there's a dreaming bardo. And then there's a preparation for death. Then there's a dying process. Then there's, then there are, there's another bardo, which is the bardo where you realize you're dead. And it's helpful if other people tell you, by the way. She says that very, yeah. very many times. Yeah, yeah. The dead people are not necessarily unaware of what you were doing. And she, she says one of the biggest problems is that people don't know they're dead and then they're really freaked out. Whereas if you say, look, darling, you died and I'm with you. And I'm going to help you through this transition. She's saying all the time that the impermanence of life is not that different from the impermanence of the bardo changes. So when you're changing from the living bardo to the transition bardo to death, to the death bardo, to the becoming bardo, to to shunyata, to other realms, if in your life you've learned to surrender, you will learn to surrender in those moments, even when you're 
body is gone. Mm-hmm. Yeah, exactly. That's a huge, huge, huge point. Uh, by the way, everybody who's listening, you, like it's, you know, it's got to cross the mind. Well, wait a minute. How does she know? Does she <laughs> yes. die and come back? And she says in the book, you know, there's, of course, I do not know. But I will tell you that um, I have been with what, I don't know if she, she even goes this far, but I'll, I'll say it, it. People like, teachers like 16th Karmapa, just start there. I mean, uh, again, a, a million times I've said this. I did have his darshan, and, and it was exactly the same as Neem Karoli Bama. There, there was no separation, what's, whatever that groundlessness is, that spaciousness and loving awareness is, that thing there, as we call it, it was there. And so she says, I trust my teachers who have uh, the ability to not be bound by polarization and are free to do the kinds of things that 16th did and Nimkaroli Baba that appearing in two places at one, you know, all of those kinds of uh, extraordinary miracles. Uh, it, I, I believe her right away. You know, I have, I have trust in her, Pema just because I know who she's been with and I know how honest she is. So anyhow, I just... Uh, no, that's very important because, it, you know, you, that's the crucial question is how do people know about this? But Minjur Rinpoche, who yeah. we both know and, yeah. and adore, you know, from the great lineage of, of Tulku Orgen Rinpoche yeah. and his brothers, mm. he put himself into a position when he could have been fairly happy and comfortable and warm in the monastery uh, of being a person out in the cold with no food, no shelter, no nothing, and eventually getting really sick and then entering a space which was which was analogous, if not close to, the experience of dying because he had no... He was vomiting and throwing up and freezing yeah. cold and outside and nobody knew him and it was the worst. He did it on... He purpose. couldn't speak, yeah. No, he, no, he, went, through the, he went through some of the bardos, for sure. Right, he did, and, and then he came back. Yeah, near-death experience, he, he, he said. Well, he I mean, you've said it many times. He came back to tell me and you and thousands and maybe millions of other people, be not afraid, be calm. Yeah. And, and, and he did it because he knew that if he didn't, at that time, he let himself go. He was fine to go and, and, and swerve into the next bardo, be it one of, of, of pure, pure purity, pure realm, or even further than that. But he stopped. And he had consciousness. It was like it's lucid dreaming. You know, when people talk about lucid dreaming, I always used to think, why do they talk about that? Well, a damn good reason to talk about it is if you can actually be in a dream and, and not surrender to it and do something in the dream, even though you're dreaming, you may stand a chance of being able to deal with the bardo between life and death and then the one when your actual body is no longer alive. And again, it's, it's, it's Pema and, and Trungpa and Minjur, mm. And the 16th and 17th Karmapa. Look, you sent me that thing and I read it, you know, about the 16th Karmapa. His, uh, his death. Yeah, but he, he kept dying. And, they, and they, he was in a hospital in Columbus, Ohio, and, or in Cleveland. And there he was, the 16th Karmapa, and he died. And everything was gone. And his blood pressure was gone. And he wasn't breathing. And his skin was gone. And they'd go, oh, he's dying, this wonderful holy man. Oh, my God. Blah, 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 blah. Nothing is working. And then they'd go away for 10 minutes and come back. He was fine. <laughs> and he did that two or three times, yeah. I don't remember. And yeah. each time wasn't to prove miraculously. It was just that one further step to go to show people, even in that hospital room, 
that he was capable of, 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 of creating vitality out of awakening and coming back for a minute or two. He didn't want to come back. He just wanted to do that, and then he left, and he's been gone. And, you know, these masters, the fact that we are alive and we can learn from this is a manifest miracle. Yeah, yeah. I mean, it's just incredible. There are, yeah. you know, 7.6 billion people on the planet. How many people actually have listened to Pema Children? I'm not saying you have to do that to be liberated or awakened. No. You can't even say that someone who believes that if they die, that when, when, they're, when they go into that next part of they meet Jesus. You can't get snotty about that and say, well, no, 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 Jesus. You've got to allow that that's the karma they had in their life to be with a Christian faith and at that time of liberation, maybe they will see Jesus. I think that it is right. You have, If you have to have any chance at all, you need to listen or read Pema Chodron and Joseph Goldstein. If you get that couple... You'll get, uh, you'll be enlightened, and everything will be just dandy. Um, no, right. really, those two people are just extraordinary in terms of the the directness with what gets delivered to you. You experience it so directly. Yes, you know, it yes. becomes less right of an intellectual uh, uh, thing. Um, I, I, let me kind of quote a couple of other things. I, yeah. I've done, I, I actually did all my highlights from my Kindle, and I have hundreds of them. But some of them are better than others in terms of how, I mean, she talks about something called the clashes, clashes which are uh, propensities for negative thinking and yeah. so on yeah. within this life. And that the more you can deal with what Trungpa called these beautiful monsters, he called them beautiful <laughs> yeah. monsters. Yeah, I love them. You know, like they're, they're just there. It's part of it. You can deal with them by refraining from reacting, transforming the clashes, using the emotions as a pathway to awakening. Well, what does that mean? It means that you just surrender to them and don't fight them and don't get angry about them and don't feel that you're you're badly dealt with by the universe. That you're, as Alan Watts said, a stranger in the universe. You're not. You're just not actually in that path of learning yet. When you get into it, you understand it. Now, a lot of this book is about how to deal with grieving and with with people who are in fact dying as well as people who died. I mean, Pema talks about talking to people for 49 mm. days. Yeah, yeah. It, it, one's supposed to be in the in the one before the becoming part of for 49 days. And I had an experience of this recently, a very deep one, which I'd like to relate. Yeah, please. Um, a, a very, very dear friend of mine um, who I've known for a long time and is part of my family um, passed away in, in um, I guess it was May of this year. And he had such a strong effect on me um, in my life in terms of his devotion to um, Ramana Maharshi in particular and Nim Karoli and uh, a few others. Given the fact that no one had ever taught him about this, he came upon him spontaneously late in life. Mm. And um, he taught me as much as anybody because he just had it from a pure place. He didn't attend any satsangs. He wasn't part of anything. Never heard of Kiritan. He just wasn't part of that. He was a guy who worked a job, you know, but he was enlightened. So it occurred to me that when he died, he died quickly. He got cancer and then died, just like that. And that I would talk to him in the 49 days of the Bardo. And I did. Every day. Every single day. I counted the days. Hmm. I knew when the last one, when he would fade either or, or move into an enlightened, open awareness state close to liberation, if not liberation itself, or would be struggling. You know, and, and, and Trungpa said, don't struggle. 
Mm. And, and, and Pema says, don't run, don't worry, stay calm. But if someone's telling you and you're aware of that person, even though they are officially dead and you're still so-called alive, they hear it on some level. So yeah. she talks about, I was so pleased when she talked about talking oh, about yeah. friend for 49 days because I did it yeah. and it felt really great. Wow. I mean, I mean, I, I was saying, you know, hey man, you know, relax. It's easy for me to say that, you know, I'm sitting in my living room waiting for a Netflix film, but there you are in that space. Don't be frightened. Don't be confused. You are an enlightened gentleman and you can pass through this. These are matters of great wisdom, these, these things mm. she's teaching. Yeah, and, yeah. and all the others that you mentioned, Brock. Yeah, I mean, this is yeah. what we're really here for, is to help other people deal with all kinds of what they call unwelcome, unwelcome events in your life. One of them is illness. One of them is, is, is violence. One of them is death. And if you don't sort of practice, by the time it's somebody saying to you, I think you're going to die in two days, you can't like catch up in two days. <laughs> she makes that quite plain. Mm. It's harsh. But it's true. That's why we do all this shit. That's why we do it. What else? What, what other reason are we doing it for except to learn how to well, expand, expand our compassion and to deal with life and death? It's even more pointed, actually. Uh, let me see if I can find this. Uh, it's about the reality of what happens in our day-to-day -day now lives in terms of... Uh, thinking well about other people, sending metta, kind, loving kindness, and how that in the moment of going through uh, the, um, the bardo, that if you have any consciousness at all of thinking of others, just like that, you know, kindness of the loving word, thinking of others in that moment. Gee, I, oh, there's other people going through this experience. Yeah. I hope, I hope they all are well. Mitigates this fear in a gigantic way, and doesn't it mitigate in our day-to-day -day lives the kind of separation and fear that uh, is so prevalent these days? by virtue of just thinking outside of yourself. Just as soon as that happens, your, your self-concern flies away. So the analogy of that happening in the moment of transition where the, the fear comes in, the mitigation of it is thinking of others. Remember in Becoming Nobody... Ram says, when is it enough about what I want? When's it enough about what I need? It's much more interesting to serve. And that came prominently out uh, in this book too. That, that, that got me uh, just like, you know, you, you found this other thing that uh, really uh, about the 49 days that really, um, supported what you had done with this person who's I felt the same way about this this whole idea this isn't about getting enlightened as his holiness the Dalai Lama says it's about kindness is my only religion right and so but now central I want to go back here a little bit central to the core of what 
to recognize and then hopefully transform is is our relationship with impermanence because that is the scariest ass thing for all of us in every way you know holding on to a joyful thing or 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 having to how long is this grief going to go on whatever it may be the impermanence is uh is key pretty much to everything the buddha said of all footprints the elephants are outstanding just so of all subjects of meditation the idea of impermanence is unsurpassed thanks a lot buddha you know oh, oh my god but um the, so i i'm just being in india right the level of uh, impermanence, and you've been there, you know, the, the, it's, it's, it's all out front. The height yeah. of it is right out front. You can't hide it. There's nothing to do. And it's out front. Uh, I mean, one example, uh, you know, just driving on the road one day, and my partner said, did you see that? And I went, No. And I was already afraid, knowing India, what you see, just <laughs> put your, if you happen to be looking, you know, out the window is enough to uh, really scare the shit out of you. Anyhow, mm. it was, and this is, uh, it was a cow had died on the road, must mm. have been hit or something. Yeah, yes. But it had a calf that was still trying to suckle. Oh. And um, I'm like, what in India, cow, sacred, the whole, mm-hmm. it was so poignant. <laughs> and I, I could not handle the moment of that. I wanted to shut it out so bad. Because mm-hmm. animal, you know. Anyhow, the, the reality is just like you talked about with... Uh, how you set your acid trips and how they became an important uh, way of going inside to find the the real Dave uh, is, and, and what uh, Tuari said, it's a way of life. It has to be a way, it has to be is not a good word. Doesn't matter, whatever, if it's karma for it to unfold that way. Mm-hmm. But, uh, you know, perspective is a hell of a lot of what this is about in terms of realizing, wait, if if my perspective does shift even a little bit, I, and you talked about reacting to stuff, and, and that is going to change. And even a millimeter of a shift makes a huge difference. Yes. Yes. Yesterday, I was in a pharmacy to pick up a small item, a tiny item, because $4. And um, I found myself in a queue. Uh, and um, the, the head of the queue was a woman I would imagine in her 90s, who is obviously a cancer victim hmm. uh, because of her shaved head. And she just could not do what you had to do to transact what she bought. And there were about five of us in the queue. I was third. Mm-hmm. And I remembered what Ramdas said. You don't know where you're at until you react to something that's not reactable 
in any pure place. And I started to feel a little volcanic anger at this <laughs> old woman because I was in a bit of a hurry, you know. Uh, and then yeah. I remembered, I actually remembered that exact thing. That There I am, it's not the groceries, the pharmacy, the same thing. And I remembered what R.D. said about that. And I remembered that this is what teaching is about. Because I remembered what he said in order to come to the point of surrender to just that I was there. And who cared? It was going to take three minutes longer. <laughs> These kind of little things Pema talks about in the book a lot. Knowing that the process of living can only really work if, if it's based on love and compassion and not on hatred and division. It means that a non-dualistic approach to life is absolutely necessary because if you think it's only one thing, you can't possibly have conflict. And, you know, not really. If it's all one, if it's all one, if we live in oneness, interconnectivity, uh, we can see that this life, as beautiful as it is and as precious as it is and as rare as it is, and the, the Buddhists make a big point of this, Raga, all the time, this is a rare thing. This, you know, it's, it's a rare thing to be incarnated as a human being. Ergo, when you're here, you see the process, and as you absorb the process without resistance, or not resistance to the intervention of unwelcome events, if you can do that and work at it all the time. You know, it's like KD says all the time in his lectures, when he does classes, he says all the time, you know, people say, well, how can I be like you? He said, what do you mean, be like me? Well, how can I be like holy and all that? He says, he always says the same thing. He says, you be who you are, but you got to practice. You got to have a practice of some kind. And Katie's no dictatorial human being or, or, or pseudo guru. He's saying what he experienced, that if you do not practice, once you've opened up to the idea that practice is good for you, what the hell are you going to do in the hospice? And I mean, that's harsh, but it, it, it's, it's really at the bottom of this book is the idea that we can, we can metamorphose our habitual activity in life through practice, like rehearsing, like a musician rehearses to play in a concert hall. He doesn't know it until he rehearses and says, I got it now. No different in spiritual practice. So she's saying all the time, all these little things, all these emotions yet that comes up, all this stuff can be the grist to the mill of understanding how to deal with the mm. transition, the major transition of all life, mm. which is a passing either into the next life or into a, or into an awakened, open awareness. Yeah, never mind right? even then. Right. Yeah, yeah. But you you talk about, you. what are you going to do when you're in the hospice? What are you going to do when uh, your relationship breaks up? What are you going to do when you lose your job or you don't get right. what you thought you deserved? What are you going to do when some member of the family suddenly is, gets snippy and won't talk to you, you know, stuff like that? What are you going to do? It's the yes. same thing. Yeah. That's what that's the beauty of this yeah. book. Yes. Did you did you read the this uh, I I know you read the whole book, so you did. The Mother and Child Luminosity? Yes, and that's wonderful. What an amazing use of language. Yeah, these people, right? So on one level, you go, wow, these people come up with analogies that are just so striking. And, you know, they hit luminosity, child, you know, they're really powerful. And then in another breath, you go, what the fuck are we talking about here? It sounds great. How does it apply in my life? And so I, I went into it. Um, she says, a traditional way of describing the final dissolution of this life Consciousness dissolving into space is in terms of the child luminosity meeting the mother luminosity. This is, 
So the child luminosity is the experience of our mind's sky-like nature with which we can familiarize ourselves through training, which is what we're... Okay, so this, you know, it sounds very, very Tibetan Buddhist is what it sounds like. But what if you if we bring it down into uh, as practical terms as possible uh, the experience of our mind's sky-like nature could maybe we could say is the experience that um, is without the judgmental mind it's ramdas's loving awareness space where there's no judging going on there is um the the self-talk comes to an end. There's just, the, I mean, does that sound reasonable? Just in in terms of relating a Tibetan Buddhist term to a term that we would use in our bhakti yeah, tradition. Yes, it is, because I think most people know when they're being compassionate and when they're giving and not taking. And therefore, that the, the, the fact that they actually feel that um, condition when they're in the process of breathing out loving awareness, loving kindness, it makes you feel good, even though that's not why you're doing it. And so, yeah, that's the proof. I mean, she tends to say all the time that, okay, you don't believe in any of this stuff. Do you believe in, in basic goodness? Do you believe yeah. that's, that's behind right. that? Because Trungpa talked about that all the time, that, you know, goodness was the way it worked. The, the miracle of love, back to that. That, you know, we all know this, or most of us read that book and, and know that the irony of, of, of that is amazing. That miracle, the word miracle, you know, means something magic, extraordinary, changing, fantastic, unbelievable. And what you guys learned with Maharaji so much, so intensely, was that love is a miracle. Yeah. Without love, the whole damn universe would, not be, would be something else. Not even the universe, reality. And, and so, you know... To learn, I mean, I just want to... Um, Wait, before you go anywhere, we got to finish because there's a child luminosity and the mother luminosity. Well, I just, yeah, I, yeah and, but he also says that in the Tibetan Book of the Dead, she says in the Tibetan Book of the Dead that um, the feeling of death should be the feeling of the child coming home. So it's like, mm. you know, and it's, he also says, and this is amazing, he says it's like you're homeless, you're destitute, you're poor, and you're ill. You have nowhere to live. It's raining. And then somebody comes and goes, I have a place for you. I have a room. It's warm. I'll feed you. Come. Mm -hmm. He says that's the real feeling of moving into liberation, into awakening. Mm -hmm. And that's why mother-child luminosity is not a light in the sense of a luminous event. It's an inner urge that gets satisfied by, the, by nature which is that the child comes out of the mother and the mother loves the child and nurtures the child. And the child looks at the mother and there is no, there's nothing there but space, good space, good trouble, good space. Well, the, the mother luminosity is, uh, which is also known as ground luminosity. It's the uh, ultimate nature of reality, which is no different from our own nature. So it's the child luminosity, meaning um, the basically the discovery of the mind sky-like nature or how we just put it, uh, how Ramdas would have put it, loving awareness as a more practical kind of uh, analogy. 
and that these come together. How about this? Take it one step further. What Hanuman and Ram, right? I mean, Hanuman is, this is what he is, nothing but the merge with, you know, when I know who I am, I am you. And when I don't know that, I serve you, right? That famous thing that Hanuman said. That can get reflected here as well. It's that, because ultimately it's the merge of the mother and child luminosity. It's only, there's only one thing going on. There's a bunch of different ways to interpret it, right? Yes. I mean, my typical ways on my daily walk through the woods and everything, I look at the trees, you know, and I know it sounds so damn cliche these days and people talk about tree huggers and all that nonsense. No, are, are you looking, kidding? And You cannot believe that. Uh, you just said trees. Sorry, I'm, yeah. I'm going to go off because I was in this uh, Deodar forest way up in the Himalayas, you know, like two weeks ago uh, at that point in the journey these deodars are a little bit, they're huge in circumference and ah. fairly high, tall. They're only in this place, which is called Jagashwar, where there's uh, 8th century uh, Shiva temples, where one of the 12 light lingams, Shiva lingams, was put by Shankaracharya in the 8th or 9th century in this, uh, and it was never destroyed because it was just out of it, too, too far out of it. I guess nobody wanted to go there. But whatever, uh, it's, it's just extraordinary. These trees are... Uh, it's how you run through the woods and you describe being with the trees, and you, you were sort of saying it's a little bit woohoo, but it isn't. It's incredible, the relationship that you can have with, with these uh, sentinels of, of our planet, right? These trees. And it becomes nothing, it, it's not inanimate at all. You know? No, no. It's and the same when, when I, I, I had a, I was right, I was actually in a place, uh, another place, which was smack in front of the whole horizon Himalaya, right up on a cliff, uh, side of a, mountain basically about 8,000 feet and it was not just oh this is pretty take a bunch of pictures it was visceral the connectivity to this thing mm. you know it's it was like darshan of a of, of a you know of a highly respected teacher or something it was incredible so yeah i'm sorry I, no it's amazing trees I mean, well i you know i see many trees but there's one tree that I always see and and relate to because it's two trees with the same roots, and I, I oh, see it every wow. every day. Every day, it's quite extraordinary. It's it's just a you know a deciduous tree. You know, it's nothing special as a tree. It's, it's extremely special. But to look at it, it's like a million other trees you've seen. And then you look at it for real, and you see it's two trees, um, like pillars next to each other, and then the roots are one. And mm. every day I look at it and I say to I say to this. This being, you know, thank you. And it, mm. it has become apparent recently, just on a scientific level, that trees just are connected. That in forests, they all yeah, know yeah, what each other yeah. is doing. Absolutely. They're all part of one thing. And that's another example, once you start uh, realizing that kind of stuff, that we are, our interconnectedness is, is, is obvious. And when we see the, um, oh, I don't know, what can you call them? The bad guys take over and do things and we all get 
stressed, and we've had a lot of that in the last seven years in this country. And Ravenous. Ravenous. Yeah, that's so, okay. Amen. They don't have um, the same kind of, of desire. Their desire is not to find out how they're interconnected at all. It's the opposite. So we deem them bad guys, whatever. You know, that's a whole other story. But when you don't do that, and you, you know, I, I yesterday I looked at my hawk poems. I've written, you know, 30 or 40 poems about hawks and eagles. Because mm. from where I live, I see them, eye level. And over the years, I've seen quite a few of them, you know. And I love them because they're so regal. They're so regal. When they're flying near you, you see the, the you can hear the flap of the wings. You can see the focus on the on the river that I live next to to find a fish. You can feel their ability to float when they just want to relax, when they don't want to flap the wings, they fly with the wind. All of those things become apparent, and it's an extraordinary, beautiful experience every time. And I was never aware of birds where I grew up in England, in an industrial part of England. There were birds, there were sparrows walking around, they're beautiful too. But now I see these raptors. Mm. And nature takes me to a certain place now that is really important to me. To see mm. the, the impermanence inherent, particularly this time of the year, it's autumn now. Yeah. And where I live, it's red and orange and dark green and brown. And you know they're going. And within a few days now, a week or two, they'll be gone and the trees will be bare. We don't grieve about that. We don't go, oh, God, the trees are bare. It's never coming out. We know it's coming back and it will come back. And it, it always does. When you're alive, you see this return of life and decay, death, rebirth. And if we can't follow that as being what we are, the precious life we are, we, we've been given by God really is so rare that we can be self-conscious about it and take teaching. And the very fact that we can even be talking about Pema children instead of, you know, the midterm elections shows that we've been given a great gift. And it sounds very self-righteous to say this, but I, I occasionally look at myself and go, what are you doing wasting your time on that nonsense? Why are you even thinking about those politically? Why? It's, it's absurd. Be, as she says, Pema children says repeatedly in this book, don't run at things. Stop, be calm, walk, stop, pause, feel the gap. When the gap comes of realization, the glimpse, just, oh, there's a gap. I'm not myself anymore. I'm not this little individual. I'm, you know, I'm everything. Oh, my God. Oh, my God. And then it's like <laughs> when, when Stephen Colbert asked Elvis mm -hmm. Costello what he thought happened when you die. Elvis Costello said, well, it's sitting here and then you're looking at the roof and then you are the roof and then you're beyond the roof. And there's a plane, and you are the plane, and there's the sky. But it's basically, I, I'm looking up now at the studio roof. I am that. That's all I can say. And it blew me away, because in a weird kind of way, it's like saying we just move into another space. Mm. And Timothy Leary, when I was doing the film about him, um, we were talking about death because he was about to die. He, he loved to talk about it. And I asked him one time, you're very relaxed about this. You know, you, you've got terminal cancer and you're going to die soon. And you're relaxed about it. And he said, I am not kidding when I say that I see this as a grand adventure. Mm. Nothing less a grand adventure. There were taboos in my life that I went through. Drugs, sex, violence, politics, the whole thing. But this is an adventure I'm about to enter. What could be more fascinating 
that I'm mm-hmm. going somewhere I do not know. Yeah. But if I'm ready for it, I go there. And, you know, he refused to take pharmaceuticals in the last six weeks, eight weeks of his life, whatever, because he didn't want that in him when he passed, even though he wasn't a particularly... Um, we had arguments about the Bardos. He once said to me, how do you know it's 50 days, 49 days? How do you know it's not 55? How do you know it's 33? You're just trusting these, these guys? I said, yeah, I am, Timothy. And, you know, oh, well, I mean, that's just... A, a, yeah, yeah. I can't follow that statement. But, you know, uh, she, I just want to... I can't help but want to re- read things she said because she says such absolutely wonderful things here. Like, sorry about this. I should have been ready, but I'm not. Um, Padmasambhava, the great Rinpoche who brought Buddhism to Tibet mm. and, and founded the Padma family. My cat is called Padma. So. <laughs> uh, he said, my view is higher than the sky. But my attention to my actions and their effects is finer than flour. And in that sentence, it solved the idea of how can you juggle being alive and having friends and having enemies and having divorces and doing this and having a job and with awakening to the open space of total awareness. He says both are possible. We can go there, but we must look at what we do. And if we treat people badly or hate them or hurt them, that ain't just going away. So that when you, and Yogananda said, Yogananda said, Paramahansa Yogananda said, don't think that when you die, you're leaving all that behind. It's the thing that brings you forward. What your habitual tendencies were or weren't. That's what transmits you. That's transmog. That's what, what they call it. Um, tr- there's a word for this. Mm. I'll think of it. It's a word that means how, what is the energy that transports the consciousness away from the body? What is that energy? And how can you actually affect it? Can you? Yes, she, she says you can by practice. Mm. If you don't practice, then you might have something else that'll get you there. Mm. Maybe but, Tom Petty, before he died, loved singing, you know, Refugee. And, <laughs> uh, you know, I, and, and every time he sang Refugee, he went into like, I have no idea, but you can't dictate this. But when you come across a Pima Children or a Trungpa Rinpoche or a Karmapa or His Holiness, that's... I'm still blown away by the fact that I know about any of this crap. Yeah. Uh, Trunk Rinpoche. <laughs> yes. Said when asked what to do when I die. Pema asked him, train now in resting in open awareness. And if at the time of death you feel fear or other emotions, do Tonglin, which is a practice that we should somehow make uh, yes, a connection to in the show notes, uh, this particular practice, which is practice of sending and taking. We, we breathe in not only our discomfort, but the discomfort of others. And we breathe out loving kindness, basically. I mean, it's, it's, there's more complexities, no, but, that's but that's the that's, basic thing. That's, that's so... Um, but so it's thinking of others. It's back to that thing that we talked about earlier. Uh, so do Tonglin for all the others who are dying and feeling these same things. Think of relieving them of their suffering and sending them happiness. And Pema says, I've been training like this for many years, especially when I feel fear. I breathe it in and think of others and what they are going through. In this way, I'll open my heart now and at the moment of my death. No. 
that's the key to the whole shebang. Yeah, yeah. (laughs) It's pretty pretty simple. And um, Mm. the other key thing that she says, uh, because we're back to, okay, the practicalities of what we can do to transform this fear in this way. As, as we develop, she says, an appetite for welcoming the challenges that arise in daily living, our day-to-day experience becomes more relaxed and enjoyable. Develop an appetite for welcoming the challenges, the impermanence. Uh, develop an appetite. I, I, that's just a really great way of saying it. We become more comfortable with surprise and uncertainty, and more able to enter situations that were formerly in the high-risk zone. And when we die, we'll be ready for the brilliant and disorienting experiences described in the Bardo teaching. Appetite for welcoming the challenges and that that is really what what it's all about uh in terms of there is as ramdas says you can live on more than one plane of consciousness at the same time which is mm-hmm. what you described earlier in this uh podcast and so uh, our the way in which we can have a perspective that allows us to function in the world and fulfill our karma dharma uh has to be informed if one is to you know be able to go through uh in what does she call it in a more relaxed and enjoyable way then these all of these different practices are extremely important and certainly the one of getting into a perspective and the simplest one uh, Ramdas developed in his years in Maui, which is we, which we, we've mentioned as a uh, an analogy for a deeper reality, which is loving awareness and getting out of the self-centered ego mind, judgmental place that we live in most of the time. That simple shift in perspective. Uh, is huge, absolutely huge, and and allows just being able to understand this book. How we live is how we die. Yeah. I mean, you know, it, it seems obvious, isn't it? But it, it, it's not. And that's the great value of a teacher like Pema Children that, and there are, there, we know there are others, many, but she has a peculiar quality of bringing her own experience into this teaching that gives you something to hold on to that you understand. Very very, very humane. Yeah, yeah, she is. Very and, and very unpretentious. At the same time, she mm. was, you know, uh, an abbess and of, 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 of incredible monastery. She, she's been a, a high, high, high lama in a way, in a way that no one else has, uh, quite. And her teachings come from her intense involvement with the teachings of others. And was, the greatest again, Tibetan, yeah, the greatest Toku yeah. Urgin, uh, six. I'm pretty sure she, yeah, uh, oh yeah, yeah, sixteenth yeah, uh, Karmapa, Dilgo mm-hmm. Kensi Rinpoche, Trumpa Rinpoche. I mean, uh, she has been well trained. Let's put it that way. 
And, yes. and yeah. when, you know, uh, there'll be a link in the show notes, everybody. Obviously, uh, I think the, I think it's out. It may be coming out shortly. If it's not out, you could pre-order it. Uh, oh, really? Okay. Well, no, it was there, David. That's right. No, you, you just, yeah. So it's out there. Um, and you, you, you all can see for yourself just in the, between the lines that you can trust this person. It's what happened to me with Ramdas when I first met him. I knew I, it was just trust. It wasn't even a, there wasn't a polarity of me knowing I could trust him. There was just trust. And uh, yeah, I think you'll find that with her. I mean, I felt it was that important. A, I, I want to turn my David on and, and other friends for sure. But at the same time, I thought it would be a great thing to share as a podcast. It, it's got an immediate magnetic effect. I mean, Sandra got it the same day I did online and she just read it like boom. And she's, oh, really? you know, she works really hard and doesn't have that much time, but she mm. just read it, he ate it up. And, mm. and you know, you will. I mean, I just wanted to um, say something that re re sort of relates to what you were saying before. She says, and I think this is important, we can train in automatically having positive thoughts whenever shocking or disappointing things happen out of the blue. This could be any event, big or small. Whether we slip on a banana peel, we spill ink mm -hmm. on our new white shirt, or yeah. the doctor tells us we don't have long to live. And um, you see, she's constantly suggesting that the uh, cultivation of positive trajectories in your awareness and in your um, aura and in what you say and what you do and what, how you are with other people and other animals and plants and trees and stars and everything. She's saying that is what will give you the tools in a place you've never been in and none of us ever can mm. hear anyone who's been in except in some unusual channeling or whatever. But the vast majority of human beings have not. So um, mm. it's not a nice thing. It's not something particularly esoteric. She's saying, just train yourself in being positive. Because if you can do that and do it right, you will eventually find a place of repose. And nothing, nothing will upset that repose, even the knowledge that you're moving into an unknown space. At, yeah. Uh, yeah. Perfect. Perfect. Ending to the podcast. Oh, really? We're done? Yeah, yeah. We've just blown through a whole wow. hour. Mm. Um, yeah. Just thinking the last silly little thing, because we were talking about... You know, I, I spend three weeks in India and I get on the plane to come back. Uh, you know, uh, I get a little sick eating too much Indian food. So they, uh, you know, wake you up to serve, not that I was asleep, to serve uh, breakfast, which is this whole Indian plate of, you know, fried veggies and dal and, yeah. you know. Great. I actually completely lost it. I can't, I said to the uh, steward, I can't eat one more bite of Indian food. Don't you have an egg? <laughs> that was my big, uh, okay, yeah, three weeks in retreat, and then yes. Yes. one second, it's all gone. Yes. But you got to yes. laugh. I get, you know, you oh, got, you do, you do, you do. You know, I mean, if, if look, you've been doing this podcast on myself too for a long time, and, you know, it's it's very good. It's very good if there's a natural sort of ness about talking about this stuff, 
we're talking to second hand, we're talking about a woman who's talking about it and, and her writing. But we know that what she says in this book is immeasurably um, helpful. Yeah. I mean, when I read it, I'm surrounded by a little bit of this right now with people passing that I love. Yeah. And, yeah. and, you know, and it, it was immediately helpful because it was like, okay, um, this is natural. I mean, don't get all bent out of shape that the universe hates you and it's killing you. Yeah. When you die, there's nothing killing you. It's your body saying, okay, it's time. It's natural and it hurts. It's two planes at the same time. It's yes. very difficult. And one, we have to practice in order to be able to live in in a much freer and more relaxed manner, as she said. So, Yeah, so we went from the 17th and 16th come up as to Elvis Costello in this show, and I'm really pleased about that. <laughs> yeah, God love Elvis. <laughs> uh, thanks for being here. Thank David. you. I'm honored. I'm really yeah. honored because, I, you know, for me to be talking about death is because I'm no different from anyone. I, I get freaked sometimes and think, oh, I'm going to die soon. Oh, God, oh, God, oh, God. But yeah. to be able to expand on this helps us too. <laughs> you know, the, we too do yeah. what you see here. Yeah, exactly. And it, it helps exactly. to think that. And we're doing it via, um, not that Raghu doesn't know this stuff or I don't know it on some level, but we're doing it via this amazing woman who is a great blessing for all of us. And yeah, you should just, really get this book. We have no we have no say in this book. It's nothing to do with us. It's just a great thing and it will help you lie. The beautiful <laughs> reflection that allows us to have uh, maybe a little bit of a yeah. a light light going off in our in our right. beings as we just read some different and, things. And I mean, you know, it, yeah, I mean, just just go to Spotify if you don't mind Spotify and find the song called Death Is Not the End. By uh, Mr. I, Bob, Mr. Bob Dylan, and oh. I consider it to be his greatest song. Um, it is the most amazing song you could ever really? hear. Death is not the end, and it's okay. most—it's so lucid. It's just like her, because Bobby Zimmerman has that sometimes, very big time in his songs. Yeah. Death is not the end. All he right, thirty years ago. Anyway, that's my we'll, party. We'll, my party. We'll, uh, put that in the show notes too. Please uh, do. Okay, Dave. <laughs> all right. We will see you all next time. This is uh, Mind Rolling on Be Here Now Network. Go to BeHereNowNetwork.com and enjoy the plethora of amazing thought leaders and teachers. See you next week. <laughs> <laughs>